Welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Have some relation to our worship this morning, uh, so we'd love for you to grab that. The rest of us, let's go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes 4. Uh, that is the passage that I just read to you. Uh, perhaps the passage that you are thinking, what in the world is going on in that passage, and what does the Lord have to teach us? Um, I spent uh, much time this week uh, grueling through that passage, and so I stepped back for a moment. I'm going to step back here for a moment and remind us, why are we going through Ecclesiastes? Well, Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom. And I desire in this day and age to refocus our lives on the wisdom of God. That's why we're calling this sermon series Refocus. Because if you are like me in the last 18 months, uh, two years, however much, however long it's been for you, or maybe it's been longer than that, shorter than that, whatever you may have struggled with or whatever you may have been disoriented with, we, we realize that in, in our day and age, in the, the environment that we live in, in the divided world that we live in, in pandemic world, political world, everything that we struggle with, it is easy to become disoriented with what in the world is going on and ask the question, what in the world is God doing on this earth? And perhaps, what on earth am I doing on this earth? Well, the preacher Solomon in Ecclesiastes seeks to answer that question under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we might know how to live wisely in a broken world. Because as many have told me as we've gone through this series, it seems like not much has changed. The same things that Solomon, the same things that the preacher is struggling through are the same things that we are struggling through. And indeed, that is a major point of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. Not a whole lot has changed. We still struggle. We still toil. We still look for meaning and purpose. And so today, as we go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he will continue to build as he seeks to help us to understand what the Lord is doing What he will seek to do, what I'm praying the Lord will do in these moments is get our vision that perhaps has become blurred and put on the the spectacles, if you will, of Scripture because now we see through a glass dimly, but we want to see clearly. And so we put our glasses on and say, okay, God, God, I see what you're doing. I may not understand it, but but I see it and I'm I'm trusting. And so that's what I'm I'm praying for. This this morning we're going to ask the question as the sermon series is titled, and perhaps you've already heard it if you're listening closely and already put that together. If not, I'll help you see it as we go along, is ask the question, for whom? For whom? That's what Solomon says. That's what the preacher says. Some of you have not stopped to ask the question, for whom? So I'm praying this morning that we will stop and ask the question, for whom? Writing in the late 1500s, early 1600s, there was a great poet. If you took uh, British lit, you were likely introduced to this poet by the name of John Donne. Anybody hear of John Donne before? Yeah, about two people. Uh, Y'all need to go to uh, Barnes & Noble this afternoon and buy a poetry book, um, and you will certainly see uh, something by John Donne in there. He has a very famous, you probably heard this line before uh, from him, he has a very famous poem uh, called, For Whom the Bell Tolls or No Man is an Island. Has anybody even heard that phrase before? <laughs> All right, so now you're getting to, I think it was Hemingway who named a book, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls. So, so there we are, we're all on the same page, right? Let me read you where that comes from. John Donne writes this, he says this, No man is an island, entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent. 
a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manor of thine own or of thine friends were, each man's death diminishes me. For I am involved in mankind. Therefore, sin not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. What he is describing in this poem, this this is this picture of someone standing in the street that he's describing in poetic form. Someone standing in the street and they hear the ring of a funeral bell coming from a church. And as people were due, they would ask, for whom is that bell ringing? Who has passed away? And you notice what he says at the end of this poem? He says, it rings for you. Now, you could say what he's going after is this idea that we all will pass away someday. And certainly that's true. But, but what he is after is there for the living, listening to that bell. Can you hear the bell ring? Can you hear, hear the bell toll? It tolls for thee. What Dunn's point is in this poem is to get across to us, as he says in that very first line, that no man is an island. That no man is separated from the rest of humanity. What he is saying is that what happens to other humans matters to us. That we are interconnected in such a way that we are affected by what happens to other human beings. No man is an island. What happens to our brother ultimately becomes our problem in one way, shape, or form. Now you say, why are you telling us all this? Because in the beginning of Scripture, we see this very thing. Do you remember when sin marred the world in Genesis chapter 3 and 4? Do you remember what people began to do? This is not my problem. This is Eve's problem. This is Adam's problem. Do you remember that? As they began to argue who who caused us to fall. Relationships in the garden began to fall apart so much so that humanity that's meant to live in community, that's meant to be interdependent upon one another, this, this truth that Dunn gets out in this poem that no man is an island, now humanity is beginning to form all of these islands saying, that's not my problem. Do you remember, we just went this over with our kids in the Gospel Project, as our, our kids do on Sunday morning and uh, the preschool is doing on Sunday night, we, we see this, that, do you remember what Cain asked? What, what the Lord asked Cain, excuse me, what the Lord asked Cain? Cain was ticked off that the Lord took Abel's offering. And he did not like that the Lord did not accept his sacrifice. And do you remember the question that was given to Cain? Or that Cain asked the Lord? Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord comes to Cain and says, where is your brother? And Cain asked this question to the Lord, am I my brother's keeper? Do I have a responsibility to my brother or sister? Does what's happening to those in the world really matter to me? And perhaps you said, yes, I'm meant to relate to one another, but I really have responsibility for my brother. Here's why I'm bringing this all this, because this is indeed very similar to what Solomon is getting apart. Look at Ecclesiastes 4.8. He says this, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling? So that's what I want to ask this question. As humanity, am I responsible? 
Am I just not? That, that's Eve's problem. That's Adam's problem. Am I my brother's keeper? Do I have a responsibility? Am I connected to other people? And that's what the preacher is going to start getting across. For whom am I toiling? For whom am I laboring? And the way the preacher is going to do this this morning, the preacher in Ecclesiastes and this preacher this morning, is to go from the big scope to the personal scope. From the public scope to the personal scope. So first... In Ecclesiastes, if you're taking notes or like outlines or whatever, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1 and 3, the first thing that I'm going to give you this morning, the condition of the world. Let's go ahead and take a look. Or the condition of the public scope of things. So, so the condition of the world, Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3. Follow along, I'm going to read this again. Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. He saw all the oppressions. So, so he's looking big at this point, Right? He's looking at all the kings, all the rulers, and you can see it to this day that there are plenty of people that are oppressing people in this world, that are using their power in ungodly ways. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and who has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. So, so do, you, do you understand what's going on? He's seeing all the oppressions, everything that's going on in the world. He's seeing that these rulers and kings, whoever is in a place of power, is using their power to hold people down and to oppress them to the point of tears. And the oppressed have no comfort. So he sees this on a large scale. He sees people with power, and this is so bewildering to him that he says, it would be better if I had not been alive to see this. It would be even better for people who are not yet born to just not be born to live in a world like this. Have you ever thought that before? Maybe new parents, sometimes you wonder, like, why am I bringing a kid into this sick and twisted world? This world is absolutely messed up. And so the preacher just has, you you can feel it, can't you? This overwhelmed, this bewildered, this heavy heart as it were. He wasn't watching the news. You understand that TV wasn't around back then, right? But as, as as he watches the news and sees all that's going on in the kingdoms around him, say, man, what is the point of all this? The oppressed are hurting. The oppressed they're powerless. Here's a big word that I think comes out of this passage. They're being dehumanized. That those in power are using people and using their power to dehumanize people. The only value that people have for people in power is that they are pawns in their game to get what they want. Have you seen that before? Whether it's in people who are tyrannical Or it can even happen in our own system, can it? That people in power do whatever they have to do to remain in power and to use that power to promote themselves. Have you maybe seen that before? And promote their own agendas. All the while the oppressed are held down and they have no one to comfort them. And their plight is felt by the preacher. This is why John Dunn came to mind when I was thinking 
through this passage. It's almost like the preacher hears the bell, right? The bell is, is ringing. He said, man, this matters. Like, I, I can't put my hands over my ears and not hear the impression. I can't put my hands over my eyes and not see the impression. I see it, and it's painful, and I just don't know what to do with it. Have you felt that before? Have you felt the weight of what he is saying? Have you felt the helplessness? That's one reason I love the scripture so much. This is not in the notes, but I'm just reminding of myself all the time. One thing I love about the scripture, it is so honest, right? It doesn't have these rose-colored glasses. It says, man, this world is broken. This world is messed up. This world is heavy for us to process through. Have you ever felt that before? Where the preacher feels it. Did you know that Jesus felt that as well? You hear it all through the Gospels. You see it at the death of his friend Lazarus that, that Jesus feels it. He weeps. We hear in the Bible when Jesus is about to heal people, we, we see this word that, that Jesus sighs. He feels the weight of a broken world. I love how David Gibson says he wrote a book called Living Life Backwards, which is a wonderful book on Ecclesiastes. If you're looking for something to read right now that goes along with the sermon series, I'm reading this as well. David Gibson, Living Life Backwards. Here's what he says, that when Jesus witnessed, I love, here's his quote, his good world twisted out of shape, he groans. That's what Solomon's seeing. God's good world, it's twisted. God's good world is out of shape. And just like Jesus would, he is groaning. So, so here's what I'm saying. That, that, that feeling, that weight, that sighing that you feel for the brokenness of the world is not a bad thing. It makes you realize and thank the Lord that you not have dehumanized people where they're just pawns in the, in the scheme, right? That you actually care about them, that no man is an island, that the oppression that you hear ringing rings for you. It matters to you. It reminds us of the tension that we live in, the already and not yet, that Jesus has come. Yes, and behold, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, yet we are waiting for the consummation of the kingdom. And as we live in the already that Christ has come and the not yet Christ will come again, it's still painful to live in this existence. So we see that living in this world, living life, as the preacher said, excuse me, says, under the sun is not all, only difficult for us to process at times regarding our own struggles, but it's difficult to process as we consider the struggles of others and the struggles of this world. We haven't asked our question yet, for whom are you toiling? But we're getting there. So he sees the public scope. He sees the, on the nightly news, if you will, all the oppression out there, and it's heavy on his heart. And then he begins to, I believe, answer the question, where does all this start? What does this mean for me personally? So not only does he see the condition of the world, point one, the public scope, he also sees, point two, the condition of the individual heart. It's the personal scope. Go ahead and look in your Bibles 
and let's keep reading. It's going to come a little bit closer to home. He's going to see what's happening in the hearts, on the grassroot level, with how we deal with our neighbors. Not just out there, but your brother, your sister, who is next door to you, who is sitting next to you this morning. Look at verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So do you see what the preacher does? He begins to see that all of this toil, all of this struggling, all of this pursuit of money, all of this pursuit of power, all of this pursuit of prestige, whatever we are driving after, he is saying it is vain when all of this work comes from what? Do you see it there? Underline it in your Bible. Envy of neighbor. So do you see the flow of thought? Seeing oppression and power struggles can cause despair as we witness the dehumanization of the powerless. But do we consider that our own striving and work may be part of the same problem? That the way that you toil, the way that you struggle, the way that you pursue life under the sun maybe looks just like those kings and queens and people in high places. Do you see that's what's going on there? That they use their power to promote and say, I am envious, so I'm going to do what I can to jockey my position to be over my neighbor out of envy of what they have so that they will be jealous of what I have. So this begins on the heart level. Here's how it plays out. Look at verse 5. Envy of his neighbor. The fool folds his hand, and eats his own flesh. So, so he's beginning to reflect here. So, so what's the answer to this? To be sure that we're not striving out of envy for neighbor, that this same inclination that's in the power of kings is, is not in our heart where we're striving in vain. He's saying there are some who respond to such a predicament, such a despair, that they just don't work at all. They fold their hands. He's getting the picture here of someone who is lazy. This idle laziness. And when we live life like that, do you see what he says? We dehumanize ourselves. We don't see the value in who God has made us as image bearers of God. Do you see what he says? He eats his own flesh. So he's saying if you're lazy in response, this was the problem what Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians, right? They thought Jesus was coming back that day, so they just stopped working. This could be our problem. We see the despair. What can I do about this? I'm just going to stop working, fold my hands, and do absolutely nothing. And the preacher is saying that that is part of the problem. That will not comfort you. That will lead you to despair. That will destroy yourself, and you will self-destruct in laziness. But there's more to this. So how do we respond? For whom are you toiling? Maybe you don't toil at all. 
Maybe you don't struggle out. You're going to destroy yourself. But there's more. Skip down to verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? So we have this other side. One, we have this idle laziness. And on the other side, when we get into verse 7, do you notice what he's saying? This is almost this, this manic busyness. That perhaps the, the, the answer for whom am I toiling, perhaps the way that you try to silence the ringing of the bell of the difficulties we see in this world and the, and the problems you see in your own heart is this manic busyness where you just can't stop. And so you work and work and work and work and you wear yourself out to accomplish much gain. But he says, for what? You give your life away and do you see that? Difficult picture. You're left with no one. You're all by yourself. You have no son or brother. There's no end to all your toil. And it says, you are never satisfied. Yeah, you're not lazy, but you're manically busy. And both of them are leaving you in despair. Both of them are going to destroy you because one, you're going to destroy yourself. One, you're going to realize if you're manically busy and never have time. Here's a key word here for relationships. Because you just envy your neighbor. Maybe you would not right, say it like that, but that's how it's kind of working out in your heart. That you don't care about other people so much so, he says here, that you're left to doing this all, your, all, all by yourself. And if you don't have people around you to enjoy that with, and all you have is your riches, he says your riches will not satisfy. That's the condition of our hearts. That's what we struggle with, that nothing satisfies. And this man in verse 7 through 8 has no one to enjoy it with. James, the brother of Jesus, says it like this. You can turn your Bibles or just write this down. James chapter 3, verse 13 and 18. He brings this back to bear in the New Testament. He says, who is wise? So we're asking for wisdom in Ecclesiastes. James says this, who is wise and understanding among you? James 3, 13 and following. By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But, James 3, 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, envy your neighbor, you're after toiling for selfish gain, In your heart, if that's what you are after, do not boast and be false to the truth. This, verse 15, is not the wisdom that comes from above. That's not godly wisdom. Envy of neighbor, selfish ambition, trying to self-promote and make a name for yourself. Pastors can do this as well. Try to build their own platform and make a name for themselves. If this is what you are after, this is not wisdom that comes down from above, brothers and sisters. Listen to how James describes wisdom, work that comes out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's earthly, it's unspiritual. Wait for it, it's demonic. Wow. Wisdom that comes from selfish ambition. James is bold enough to say 
That has nothing to do with the Lord. In fact, it's demonic. Because it dehumanizes God's good creation. It dehumanizes people. It sacrifices relationship on the altar of earthly gain. And so he is saying, if this is what you're after, if you've never asked that question, for whom am I toiling? And you're spending your life with a, a, a bloodbath behind you, but you are earning great earthly gain. He's saying, you're missing it. You've missed the point. You've dehumanized yourself. You've dehumanized others. You use your power and position to make a name for yourself. You've exploited others. You've used your influence in order to get people in your back pocket. Self-promotion is a road to misery. It's a heavy word, isn't it? It makes us stop and search our hearts. And, and yes, we need to be involved in... Uh, you know, voting, political system, and things like that. And we need to be involved in earthly affairs as much as we can matter. But, but if you ask the Lord to search your own heart, to make sure there's none of this demonic ambition in us for self-promotion so that people might look at us. Here, here, here's, here's the cure. Let me first tell you what the cure is not. Public, private, What's in my heart? What's driving me? For whom am I toiling? For me? For selfish gain? Selfish ambition out of envy of neighbor? Am I oppressing others to promote myself? For whom? Here's what it's not. Skip down to verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born, born poor. Here's what, here's what he's getting. This guy's born poor, and he had this experience of upward mobility, right? It's the American dream. Not always a bad thing to try to do well for yourself in this world. That's, that's not what he's saying. But, but if that's all you're after, this upward mobility... That's going to let you down. That's not the cure. The cure is not to get out of your personal space and get to the public space and to be that king that he talks about in verse 1 through 3. That's not the answer. The answer is not more power. He says, this man was poor. He became rich and became a king. Verse 15, I saw all the living move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. He's saying, they will replace you someday. Move up all you want, but it doesn't last forever. You will be replaced. Verse 16, there is no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. People will get tired of you. The same ones that cheered you on will be the ones that will say, I don't care about you anymore. There's football coaches that are going through that right now. Two years ago, they thought, this guy's going to be here forever. They want him fired this morning. That says something about the, no, I'm not going to get on to that, the fickleness of LSU fans, but we won't go there. But that's the point. If you're just looking for self-promotion, if you're just seeking to be a rags to riches story, if that's it, not a bad thing, but if that's the ultimate thing, that won't cure it. So what will? I think we get an idea. In verse 9. Two are better than one. No man's an island. 
people matter. Relationships matter. People are made in the image of God. If you exploit them for personal gain or power plays, you've completely missed it. You will be left alone. People matter. For whom are you toiling? For someone other than yourself. Again, two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Remember, this guy had earned everything but had no one. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm who is alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-four-fold cord is not quickly broken. Here's what he's saying. There is power in community. There is power in relationships that we are made to live in community. We are made to be dependent upon one another. We are made to ask the question, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. And we should see that in our church, right? We should be a kingdom outpost. People should be able to look at Riverside Church and say, that's earthly wisdom. That's how people flourish. Not in self-promotion, not trying to get the name of Riverside to be big, but trying to get the name of Jesus to be exalted in this city. And to see people who rely on one another, people who pick one another up, people who lean their backs together so they don't have to sleep with their heads in the mud. Forrest Gump right there. We have to know that we were made for each other, that no man is an island, and if we are after selfish gain, we will completely be dissatisfied. So what will save us from this envious heart? I'm convinced more than ever that what will save us from this, what will empower us To live in such a way is not just to try harder, but to understand the king whose kingdom we are part of. We have a king who did not use his power. All power was his. All glory was his. And what did he do? He left his throne to serve us. And to save us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Philippians chapter 2 tells us about this. That we have a king who, as it were, left his throne. We have a better king who uses his power and authority to save and not to crush. We serve a king, in fact, who was crushed for us. We serve a king who is our shepherd, who was willing to lay down his life For us, that we might be restored in the image of God. Not to dehumanize us, but to make us into the humans that we were meant to be. Behold, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. We must be born again so that we can be his. We live under his rule And to be under his rule is to be under his love. When we realize that we are loved by a king in that way. That we are loved to the depths. 
When we are loved by the king who knows everything yet loves us to the depths, when we know the fullness of his love, we will have the capacity to live our lives, to ask the question, for whom? And because we are filled with the love of Christ, the never-ending, unbreaking, always and forever love of Christ, we will have the power, because of Christ in us, to love our brothers and sisters at all costs. Imagine a community like that. I think that would be pretty compelling to our world if we loved one another in that way. As new creations who are now able by the power of the Spirit to pursue a right relationship with our work and with our resources to ask the question for whom that we are doing this for Christ and his kingdom. We want his name to be exalted. Forget selfish ambition. Forget this name. But we want the name of Jesus to be exalted. And we will do that by the power of Christ in us. For whom? This is for Christ and his kingdom. For whom? It is for others that others might know and others might experience. Here's the truth, brothers and sisters. We need to be after relationships over productivity, profit, and power. We need to rejoice over humility rather than position. We must be a people who answer the question, for whom? For my brother and sister. And what's the best thing I can do for my brother and sister? It's to live as one who is under the rule and reign of Christ. For Christ will return. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's toil in that way now so that our labor is not in vain. Let's go ahead and pray.